Well, tonight we're continuing our study of Isaiah, and we're moving into chapter 33. Chapter 33. And this is, uh, as we've seen kind of in the last couple of chapters, there is a mixture here in chapter 33 of a declaration of woe against one of Israel's enemies, I think probably in particular Assyria. But then uh, the chapter turns toward restoration, toward what God is going to do in punishing Assyria and then in the blessings that follow to Jerusalem and to the people of God after that. And so you, you see these themes kind of repeat throughout Isaiah. And, and I think what makes it very interesting is that you, you see the same underlying themes, but they're presented in a lot of different ways, using different word pictures, different, different imagery. And some of those essential themes are Israel, you have violated the covenant, God is bringing chastisement on you. He's bringing judgment on you. One of the problems that the, Isaiah has called them out on is their failure to trust in the Lord. And they, they were tempted to turn toward human alliances, whether it be with Egypt or to try to pay off you know, the, the Assyrians to keep them at bay. So they tried all these human means to try to solve their issues, solve their problems. And Isaiah says, you need to trust the Lord. And he's so much more reliable and powerful than these others. They're going to let you down. And so he's, he's rebuked them for that. He's rebuked them for their injustice, their oppression of the weak and the poor. And because of all these sins, God's chastening hand is coming on them. And the instrument, at least in this portion of Isaiah, the first half, the, the main focus of the instrument of that chastening hand is Assyria. It's just just the north, a little bit of, of Israel, north and a little bit east, and they've been exerting their power and they're, they're moving down and they're putting pressure. And God's using them, even though it's a political, you know, it's a, it's a map, right? There's a geographical map, there's political powers, there's nations rising and falling, and from a human perspective, it looks like just the normal course of history. But from a divine theological perspective, it's God overriding and, and using a whole nation as his instrument of judgment on Israel. But then in his justice, in his righteousness, God knows that Assyria is a wicked people. They're a wicked people and he is going to judge them. And so he's going to judge Assyria. And that's part of what the first part of this chapter is about, is God's uh, uh, basically a declaration of woe, of judgment against Assyria. And then in the judging of Assyria, there is a turn of fortunes for God's people. And his blessing returns to them. And so that's those are the themes that we see in this chapter. And so I've kind of broken down the chapter into four main sections, and I try to put that in the title as a woe, a prayer, a judgment, and a promise. And so the chapter begins with a woe, and it is a woe, a, basically an oracle of judgment or of doom against the destroyer. And the destroyer is not named specifically in this chapter or in, in verse one specifically, but most commentators agree that just because of the overall context that it's probably referring to Assyria. And so verse one says, woe to you destroyer. 
you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, betrayer, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. So you can see some of the poetic elements in that verse, some of the repetition of key words. And the idea is uh, Assyria has been a conquering army. They have been destroying other peoples. But the Lord is saying through Isaiah, there's going to come a time when your power is going to be overthrown. And you're no longer going to destroy other peoples. In fact, you're going to be destroyed by the power of the Lord. And this verse also points to one of the themes that we've seen, which is the futility of trusting in human political alliances. Because this this talks about the one who is the betrayer. And so all these nations, whether it be Assyria or Egypt, they would enter into political alliances. But, you know, when it was convenient, they would let those go. And they would renege on those alliances. And, and so we've seen that before. We've even seen that in modern history. You know, in, in, the, not in the 20th century, Hitler and Stalin had an alliance, right? We're, we're not going to go to war with each other. Well, then Hitler changed his mind, and he decided to go to war with Russia. And so it, same thing. Israel was putting its hope in Egypt or in Assyria, saying, you know, let's work out a deal. Let's work out an alliance. And they ended up betraying them. And so the Lord is saying, you're going to be betrayed. You're going to be judged. And so just a, a very quick declaration of woe against Israel's enemy. And then it turns in verses 2 through 6 to the form of a prayer. And it, it takes the form of, of God's people calling out to God for his deliverance. And so verse 2 says, Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. Now, that's exactly what Isaiah has been telling them to do. To, instead of putting their trust in human devices, turn to the Lord and seek his help. Seek salvation from him. And so you can see in this verse that it is verbalizing a, not only a cry for help, that the Lord would be a savior and a rescuer to them. But in order to get to that point, there would have to be a turning and a repentance, wouldn't there? Because they've been trusting in themselves. They've been going their own direction to get to the point where they recognize we need the Lord. That would be a turning. That would be a repentance in their heart. Verse three says at the uproar of your army, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. And this is, still a part of the prayer, I believe. And it is affirming to the Lord the sovereignty over what's happening in the world. And even though Assyria, you know, obviously is doing its own thing and has its own motives for what it's doing, ultimately behind it is God's providence overseeing all of history. Your plunder, O nations, is harvested as by young locusts. Like a swarm of locusts, people pounce on it. And the idea there, I think, is the nations in their conquering people and they're, and they're plundering the nations that at the Lord's will, they can be plundered. They can be, their wealth can be taken away. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with his justice and righteousness. So that's a forward-looking ideal, isn't it? 
And, and it's a call for that reality because we've seen already in Isaiah that during his day, this is not what Zion looked like. This is not what Jerusalem looked like. It did not look like a place of justice and righteousness. But this prayer is a cry for that, that God would bring justice and righteousness to Zion. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. Well, that's a great verse, isn't it? That, 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 I think, sums up a lot of the, what Isaiah has been telling the people is your only one true foundation is the Lord. You can't trust your own strength. You can't trust your own wealth, your own military power. You can't trust in the alliances and their strength and their military power. Your only sure foundation is God. And that speaks to us today. It speaks to us that, that we are tempted to put our trust in all kinds of things that are human, human uh, designed, human engineered, and our ultimate hope needs to be in God. He is our sure foundation, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. And then using language much like Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the key to all this treasure. And, and what's interesting is treasure is not spoken of in terms of money, is it? What's the treasure that he says there? It's, it's the Lord's salvation and wisdom and knowledge. That's the real treasure. And by fearing the Lord and trusting in him, that's the key to that. So it's a prayer. It's, it's an acknowledgement of who God is, but it's also a cry to God to bring his salvation and to bring that justice and righteousness to Zion. And as a part of that, again, two sides of the one coin, in order to bring salvation and restoration to Zion, there will have to be judgment on the enemies. So judgment on the nations, verses 7 through 12. Look, their brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways are deserted. No travelers are on the roads. The treaty is broken. Its witnesses are despised. No one is respected. So you can see it, it, he's painting a picture, right? And, and the picture he's painting is one of betrayal. The treaty is broken. It's one of desolation. The highways are deserted. No travelers. So it's, it's a time when plans have failed and when things are falling apart. And this seems to be God's hand in that, in, in bringing some of these human plans to ruin. Part of that is his judgment on the nations. The land dries up and wastes away. Lebanon is shamed and withers. Sharon is like the Arabah, which is a very dry, arid desert. And Bashan and Carmel drop their leaves. It, basically, the, the image is of going from green, lush, fertile, beautiful trees, fruitful, to just empty trees and barren desert. And, and that's a, a symbol of the Lord's judging hand. Now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I be lifted up. You conceive chaff. You give birth to straw. Your breath is a fire that consumes you. The peoples will be burned to ashes like cut thorn bushes. They will be set ablaze. So verse 10 is the, the turning point of the nations have been doing what they have pleased. 
but and and seeking glory for themselves, seeking their own pride and status in the world. But verse 10 is the turning point where the Lord says, I'm going to arise now and I'm going to declare my power and I'm going to bring glory and honor to myself. And those who have been strong, those who have been rich, they're going to be left like a, like a charred uh, woods, like a charred forest, thorn bushes. They're going to be set ablaze. And then the chapter ends with the, the future hope of a promise of a new city, which seems to be a, a picture of Jerusalem after the chastening hand of God. So they've been wicked, they've been rebellious, they've been unfaithful, untrusting. God's chastening hand comes on them, and through that, he purifies them. There's a turning, there's a prayer, a calling to God, and on the other side of that is restoration of of God bringing blessings. So verse 13 says, You who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. This is the Lord speaking, Isaiah speaking on behalf of the Lord, speaking to his people. Pay attention, look and see what I'm doing. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? This is speaking of the power of the Lord and his chastening hand that has come on his people. And it's almost coming to the point of, of, of brokenness uh, in, in the face of the Lord's chastisement. How long, O oh Lord, will you, how long will you continue to judge and chasten us? When will the, the, the burden lift? When will your hand of mercy come? And the answer comes back. Those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion, keep their hands from accepting bribes, who stop their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating evil. And the message here is that in a restored Zion, God is not going to bring restoration and glory and riches and wealth like it was before. In order for there to be peace and prosperity and fertility and beauty and joy, there has to be repentance. There, there, there's going to be a change. There's going to be a purification. God's not going to bless a wicked city. He is going to, in blessing, he is also transforming the city. There is going to be a purification, a cleansing that's going to have to happen. And so for this blessing to come, Jerusalem is not going to be what it was before. It's not going to be a place of bribery. It's not going to be a place of oppressing the poor. It's not going to be a place of scheming and lying and deceiving. It's going to be a place of justice and of righteousness. Verse 16 says, They are the ones who will dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. Their bread will be supplied and water will not fail them. And so what comes together in this last part of chapter 33 is an idealistic picture, isn't it? It's an idealistic picture on on two levels. One is like the physical level, 
because it's an, it's an idealistic picture in terms of that which is supplied. There's bread, there's water, there's peace, there's, there's everything that we need uh, to, to enjoy life. So that, that's the physical level. But there's also an, an idealistic picture of a spiritual level too, isn't there? That during this time of peace and prosperity, there's also righteousness and justice. And so it's pointing forward to a restored Zion, not just restored in terms of physical things, but also restored in terms of spiritual things. And while there are, there's some of this maybe on a small level that, that may have taken place in the immediate future, right after Assyria attacks, but then withdraws, there may be a, a small foretaste, if you will, of this purifying and, and turning and the Lord's blessing. But I think for, for the full effect, the full fulfillment of this idealistic picture, I think it has, has to be off in the distant future. It has to be when the Lord brings everything to its culmination point. And a, a new Zion comes down out of heaven, a new Jerusalem. And because all that that is spoken of here probably isn't fulfilled in the immediate aftermath of the Assyrian invasion. So it, it's, it's something that is idealized probably off in the distant future. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty and view a land that stretches afar. So again, it is an idealistic king, an idealistic reign, the, the expanding of borders, and so this seems to be pointing beyond what they knew as Israel and Jerusalem in their day. It seems to be pointing to something much bigger worldwide, if you will. It's, it's a global kingdom of the Lord with the Lord Jesus, the king and his beauty. In your thoughts, you will ponder the former terror. Where is that chief officer? Where is the one who took the revenue where is the officer in charge of the towers? And, and this probably is referring to when the people of Judah and Jerusalem were under the occupation of their oppressors. So whether it be Assyria, you know, exerting their, their power over them and, and exacting tribute from them and demanding loyalty from them. And, and so you've got these Assyrian diplomats, government officials there. And what this verse is saying is when the Lord restores, when he blesses Zion, you're not going to have that anymore. You're not going to have oppressors there demanding taxes and revenue from you. You will see those arrogant people no more. People whose speech is obscure, whose language is strange and incomprehensible, probably referring to the Assyrian people. And to the fact that, that they did not speak the language of Hebrew like the Israelites. So they spoke a foreign tongue and it was obscure uh, to them. And this is saying no more. Their influence will be gone. You won't have to have that oppression anymore. Look on Zion, the city of our festivals. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a peaceful abode, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up nor any of its ropes broken. So again, very, very idealized picture, right? Of Jerusalem, of a city secure, of enjoying its festivals, 
never again to be shaken. I think this can only be fully fulfilled in the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. There the Lord will be our mighty one. It will be be like a place of broad rivers and streams. No galley with oars will ride them. No mighty ship will sail them. Also probably referring to the ships of their invaders who maybe would take people off captive, maybe turn them into slaves. And, and so no more invaders, no more ships coming in to trouble us. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Again, that's what Isaiah has been preaching this whole time. Don't trust in the king of Egypt. Don't trust in Assyria. Don't trust in Israel and Syria and their alliance. Don't trust in any of that. Trust in the Lord. Your rigging hangs loose. The mast is not held secure. The sail is not spread. Then an abundance of spoils will be divided, and even the lame will carry off plunder. Now, the imagery is kind of difficult in verse 23. Because it immediately goes from a declaration of the Lord being Savior and the one who we should trust. And then it says something about, in in nautical terms, uh, Navy-type terms, that our rigging is loose, the mast is not held secure, the sail is not spread. In other words, the image is that of a ship that's not ready for sailing. It's It's a ship that's not prepared. And yet, it is filled with spoils. He says, even the lame will carry off the plunder. So the imagery seems to be when this happens, when this restoration of the Lord happens, it's certainly not going to become by your power. It's not going to come because you were great, because you were mighty, because your ships were so prepared and full and ready. No, the Lord is able to fill unprepared ships. And the Lord is able to cause even a lame person to be able to lift up and carry off the plunder. That that seems to be the imagery is it's not on human strength. It's going to be by the strength of the Lord. No one living in Zion will say, I am ill. And the sins of those who dwell there will be forgiven. That's very new covenant type language, isn't it? Um, We read in Jeremiah 31 that one of the great promises of the new covenant is God says, I will forgive their sin and I'll remember their iniquities no more. And so again, I think this is pointing toward something, you know, maybe a foretaste of it right after Assyria. But to me, it's got to be pointing to a a very future idealistic, full restoration of all things. And a place in which the Lord Jesus himself will rule as Messiah and King. A place where there will be true justice and righteousness. A place where there will no longer be enemies and invaders. Where Jerusalem will truly be secure. Because if you think about it, you know, in, in terms of history that we've seen so far to this point. Yes, Assyria was propelled backward. We're going to see that in Isaiah in in coming chapters, not too far away. But it's not too often in the future when Babylon is troubling them. And Babylon conquers Jerusalem. Babylon destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, tears down its walls, and carries people off captive. So 
That's why I think that this promise hasn't yet fully been fulfilled yet. Because you can't say from the standpoint of history that Jerusalem has reached a point of security and where it won't be moved anymore. Even today, it's trampled on by the Gentiles, as Jesus says that it would be. Uh, Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times are fulfilled. And so ever since, you know, you've got Babylon, and then even after the rebuilding, you've got the Romans, and they destroy it. And the temple, the palace, the walls, they've really not been restored since that day. So to me, it's pointing to something that, that John speaks of in Revelation, of a new true Jerusalem coming down with Jesus as the king and expansive borders so much wider and bigger than you can even imagine right now. No more enemies because God has totally taken care of those enemies. Time of peace and righteousness and of justice. And yes, those who dwell there will be righteous. And that's what we see in the New Testament, isn't it? That, that when God brings that new heavens and new earth, when he brings that new Jerusalem down, no murderers in there, no idolaters, no, no covetous, no, no immoral pe- person, no liars. It is a place of righteousness, a place of justice. And we look forward to that day, don't we? We long, we long for that day. You know, for us, you know, still living at this moment in time, there's so much that we can learn from this chapter. I think one of them is don't trust in human devices, human plans, because they're going to fail you. As James reminds us in James chapter 4, you know, we can make plans, but be sure to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. And always, always hold your plans loosely, knowing that the Lord is ultimately in the one who directs our steps. So don't put our ultimate trust in those things. Put our ultimate trust in the Lord and long for his righteousness, long for his truth. We, we live in our country as well as around the world, all different nations. None of these nations are perfect. Our, our country is not perfect. No, no nation on earth is perfect. It is a mixture of justice and injustice. And, probably more to the side of injustice in most nations. So we long for the day when true righteousness and justice will be all there is. And, and that's where our hope is. And we, we long for that day. And, and until that day comes, we seek to be God's people and, and emulate those things right now, at least until that final day comes, the day of hope that we long for.